Just before I launch into today's video, I wanted to let you know tomorrow, Nancy and I are going live. 7 o'clock Pacific time if you're on the West Coast, adjusted for wherever you are. It's always wonderful to be able to see people real time. So if you can make it, love to connect with you then. made by God to count. We have a drive for significance inside of ourselves and we want to know that our lives matter in the eyes of God and, and in the eyes of other people. So what I want to talk about for a few moments today is actually not how do you look in the eyes of others, but how do other people look in my eyes, in your eyes? When we look at people, what do we see? One of the signs of growth and excellence in any arena is a transformed capacity for vision. We've talked about how Nancy and I go surfing with our youngest because he's a really good surfer who's been out so many times. He can just look at a wave and say, uh, nope, that one's not going to have enough energy. Nope, that one's going to have too much energy. That one will be just right. We're looking at the same water molecules, but we cannot see what he can see. He has trained eyes. I grew up playing tennis. If I'm watching a movie and there's people that are actors and they're pretending to play tennis, but they can't play well, I can't not see that. Or to take a very common example, when all of us learn the alphabet and we master the ABCs, we're looking at what were at one point just scratches on the paper, but now they are filled with meaning. And where this is particularly important for you and me in our drive to significance is, what do we see when we look at other people? David Bentley Hart is a New Testament theologian and he writes about the significance of a story that you may or may not be familiar with. If you're a Bible person, you might know it. The Apostle Peter, fisherman, follows Jesus. When Jesus is going to be crucified, Peter had said, no matter what happens, I will follow you, I will be faithful. But then Jesus predicts that Peter will deny him three times by the time the rooster crows, and it happens. He denies him, the rooster crows, and Peter weeps bitterly. Now, in our day, we would tend to look at that story and say, yep, that's kind of what we would expect. It is appropriate for those details to be noted. It would not have been so in the ancient world. Something's going on in the telling of this story, Hart says, that was, rev that was a revolution when it comes to how do human beings get looked at. Here's what Hart writes. Uh, Among the literate classes of late antiquity, to call attention to Peter's grief would have more likely seemed an aesthetic mistake. For Peter, as a rustic, a peasant, a poor man, could not possibly have been a worthy object of a well-bred man's sympathy. Nor could Peter's sorrow possibly have possessed the sort of tragic dignity necessary to make it a suitable subject for a poet or a historian, like the writers of the Gospels. If a peasant's weeping possessed any interest at all, it might be as an occasion for cruel mirth. Tragic dignity was the exclusive property of the noble-born. Tragic dignity, dignity, was the exclusive property of the noble-born. It was the great literary critic Eric Auerbach, many decades ago, who perhaps most powerfully called attention to the singularity of the story, 
in the context of late antique literature. Auerbach writes, when one compares this scene to the sort of emotional portraiture one finds in great Roman writers, comic or serious, one discovers that only in Peter can you glimpse the image of a man in the highest and deepest and most tragic sense. And yet Peter is a peasant from Galilee, a rural backwater in an obscure and and barbarous colonial territory. This is not merely a lapse of good taste. It is an act of rebellion. Something is happening to the dignity of every human being, and it is traced back to the movement of this one man, Jesus. In this story, Harkos, we begin we see something beginning to emerge from darkness into full visibility, arguably for the first time in our history, the human person as such, invested with an intrinsic and inviolable worth, an infinite value. Actually, even our blithe willingness to assign personhood in the fullest sense to everyone who comes our way is the consequence of the ancient revolt. Originally, at least in many crucial contexts, person was a fairly rare commodity. And he goes on to talk about what other writers have as well. Our word person comes from the Latin word persona. Originally, it meant face. It may well have been... uh, 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 a, a reference to the fact that um, elite families were allowed to have a wax figure of a face at a funeral. And so they had personae, a, a face in the presence of the law. They had legal rights. For the most part, slaves, for example, were not persona in the eyes of the laws. They were not persons in that way. Writers did not treat peasants fishermen, the poor, with any dignity, let alone a sense of tragic dignity. And this has been true throughout most of human history. You might remember the Dred Scott decision in the 1800s in the United States found that if you were African-American, if you, even if you were free, you did not have the right as a person to bring a claim against other people in a court of the United States. When the Constitution was written, African-Americans were regarded as three-fifths of a person when it came to counting the population of states to see how many representatives they should have as a house. When Jesus came and he looked at human beings, he saw persons. And the Bible's way of referring to this in particular is not so much a philosophical definition. It is that people bear the image of God. And so here's the exercise for today. Here's the challenge for today. I want to return, but read a little more fully um, a practice that uh, Andy Crouch talks about in The Life We're Looking For. He was at O'Hare Airport one time, and it struck him he could actually get several miles of exercise while he's waiting for his next flight just by walking the concourses. But then he needed something to think about. And he had been reading in Genesis, reflecting on how God creates human beings in his image. It occurred to me, and he said, that I could attempt a kind of ambulatory act of contemplation. As I walked, I decided I would try to take note of each person I passed. I would pay as much attention to each of them as I could, as much, that is, without seeming like some kind of creepy airport stalker, and say to myself as I saw each one image bearer. I started out on my journey at a brisk pace. 
Backpack cinched tight on my shoulders, I passed a weary-looking man in a suit, image-bearer. Right behind him was a woman in a sari, image-bearer. A mother pushed a stroller with a young baby. A young man, presumably the baby's father, walked next to her, half-holding, half-dragging a toddler by the hand, image-bearer, 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 image-bearer. A ramp worker walked by in a bulky coat and a safety vest, image-bearer. By the time I reached the corridor where Terminal 1 connects to Terminal 2, I had passed perhaps 200 people, glancing at their faces just long enough to say to myself, image-bearer. I had six more concourses to go, walked the length of concourse E and back, image-bearer, image-bearer, image-bearer. Few of the people I passed looked genuinely happy or sad, but then those emotions are generally reserved for the airport's outer courts. Instead, they looked by turns bored, anxious, patient, cautious, faintly hopeful. By the end of my walk, I was overwhelmed in a way I had not expected. I had passed people in every stage of life and health, an uncountable number of national and ethnic backgrounds, some traveling together, most seemingly alone, the stories I would never learn behind each of those faces, the years of life that had shaped their posture and gait, the possibility and futility each one had known and would known, all set to the relentless soundtrack of those two words, image-bearer, carried an emotional and spiritual weight that I can still feel years later. From time to time, I repeat this exercise on a city street, in a coffee shop, even driving on a highway, image-bearer, image-bearer, image-bearer. So that's it today. Everybody that you see Look at them in the face. When I try to do this, it is a form of prayer. I find it's difficult to be judgmental about people. It's difficult to stereotype them. It's difficult to lust after them. You'll have a hard time watching porn if the uh, phrase that comes to your mind is image bearer, image bearer. There's often something tragic about it, Andy writes, as we see in the life of Peter, because there is a dignity to every human being. I think about those who are overlooked. We got a request for prayer from a, a woman whose life is severely strict, restricted by multiple sclerosis, often unable to attend even milestone events with her children. How often somebody in that condition is shut up, isolated, unnoticed, unlooked on, but Jesus looks. I think when I look at people that I deeply love and think of how they are suffering, and bring to mind that word image-bearer, image-bearer. There is something deep beyond words. So that's the prayer for today, an ambulatory prayer of contemplation. As you walk through the day, ask God to be with you in this. Each person that you see, image-bearer, image-bearer, image-bearer. See what Jesus would see. That's the first step towards doing what Jesus would do. And that's how we add value. That's how we make our lives count. Make that account. Thanks for joining us here at becomenew.me. If you'd like to receive the daily emails that go along with each video, let us know at becomenew.me at gmail.com. Or if you want prayer, you can text us at 855-888-0444.